This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 220 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. In this episode, we have Zach Feldman. Zach is a real estate investor and is the vice president of development at Aptitude Development, the premier student housing developer in the country. Aptitude currently owns 1,500 beds with another quarter billion dollars of student housing under construction or set to break ground. And in this episode, Zach will tell us about the pros of student housing, such as how you can dramatically increase your gross income by renting out the complexes by the bed versus by the unit, and how it's a recession-resilient asset class. So if you want to learn more about how student housing works and opportunities that come from it, then you definitely need to listen to this episode. And if you guys enjoy this podcast, do me a quick favor and leave a review on the podcast app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. It'll help me out a lot and it'll help others discover the podcast to learn more about real estate investing. And this real estate market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for your rental properties, then you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener and I'll give you a discount on our processing fees. And now onto the show. Okay, Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience and let's know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Big fan of the show. My name is Zach Feldman. I'm currently the VP of development at Aptitude Development. We are a nationally recognized student housing developer with projects across the country. And I originally bought my first building at 22, started my own company back then called Enjoy 77 Holdings, and probably that into a job at Aptitude. And now we're going across the country and beyond. So excited to be here, excited to talk about the student housing industry. And there's a lot of misconceptions about it that I would love to debunk, so to say. And I'm an open book, so. Sounds good. So why don't you walk us through your journey? How did you buy your first property at 22? And how did that lead you into where you are today? Sure. So I graduated from Elon University and I graduated without a job. I actually was looking for a job. You know, I think everyone has this misconception that you go to kindergarten, then first grade and second grade, and then you graduate high school, or at least for most people, and then go to college. And then it'll be lined up for you after that. And it wasn't. And I think you know, the world wasn't waiting for Zach Feldman. And that's, uh, that was a great, you know, you know, stepping stone first is I ended up delivering barbecue in Boston right out of college and was really just trying to find a job. I ended up in the energy sector working for a company called Creus out of Connecticut. And I had read uh, a few books and, and had a lot of family friends. You know, the only people I saw playing golf on a Wednesday were guys in the real estate industry. I'm like, yeah, you know, that seems like something if I got a couple of bucks, I'd love to get, you know, more involved in. I have some, some friends and family that are involved in the business and, you know, I always had a real interest in it. So as I had my day job, I started to look at buying real estate. I bought my first building when I was 22 in Stanford, Connecticut. I bought that with an FHA loan. It was a four family and it was within walking distance to my office. So I don't really know much better. I thought I knew the area pretty well. I, I didn't. I know it a lot better now, but it was a great first deal. I used all really my life savings at that point. I learned how to negotiate, you know, with a bank and what a mortgage broker was and, you know, what leases look like and hiring a third party manager, what makes a good one, what makes a bad one, you know, what does a window repair really need to look like? How, you know, how old is the roof? And I learned all of that really from the ground up. No one, you know, you can read books, but it's really not the same when you're going out and actually doing it. So that was kind of how I bought my first building. 
And from there, I stayed in let's call it the energy corporate world for quite a while after that and continued to buy on the side and started forming, you know, partnerships with friends from college. And that was where I started to get into student housing because I thought I knew it. I was like, I bought one. I like this. I want to go buy more. I didn't really have any money. And I partnered with friends for portfolio properties in Rhode Island, as well as in uh, upstate in Buffalo, New York. And, you know, I thought I knew the student housing industry because I was young and I was just a student, but I didn't. I learned a lot about how to you know, raise money. And we tried to do it in an institutional way with a, a waterfall structure. And we raised literally money from like friends and family. We had to negotiate with banks and contractors and we were young. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we learned a lot and we figured it out. And that was kind of my really jump into the deep end of the real estate world. That's an awesome story. And how were you able to even qualify for that first fourplex? So yeah, I mean, through the FHA program, it's three and a half percent down, three and a half percent fixed. You know, I did have a W-2, so I was able to qualify through that. You know, I think that if you're starting out, a lot of people want to, at least from what I've heard, you know, quit their job and go into real estate full time. You know, if you can buy a couple buildings or the whole time you're in corporate America, if you, if you love your job, while you're on a W-2, it's not so bad. You know, you can show income to a bank. They really care about that. I'm sure every real estate investor out there knows that if all you have is your, your K-1, some of the banks don't even really look at that. They still want to see some type of W-2 income. So it was, it was helpful and beneficial back then. And we had a great mortgage broker that kind of led us through the process. And you said that this was in Stanford, Connecticut. So I actually have family in Stanford. I've been there a couple of times. I do enjoy that area. What was it called? Stu Lennings? Is that one uh, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, Lenards? Is it called Lenards? I don't remember. Is it a soda shop? It's a store. Anyways, it's like a little farm store. Very cute. little grocery store. I used to go there all the time when I visited my family over there. But in any case, when you had that fourplex, were you renting out those other three units and living in one of the units and kind of doing like that house hack model? Yeah. So I did that for the first one. I didn't stay for very long. But yeah, now it's fully occupied. We, I, I still own it. You know, it's got you know four families in there, working class families that you know work in the community. And I hire a third party manager, and it runs pretty well. I mean, I maybe spend an hour a month on the phone with the manager. You know, drive by whenever I'm out in the area and try to go by at least you know once a month. But it really runs itself, and I got lucky with that being the first one. But there was a lot of lessons along the way, and you know whether it be. You know, the roof having to be replaced in the first couple of years and not having a reserve because you don't think that that's going to happen. And when you see it, it's not at its end of its useful life, but there might be some issues and tenants not paying the rent. And a lot of people use an FHA to get into the business, right? They buy the first house. It's a lot of leverage, but you're responsible for the debt. And if, you know, when I moved out and there's four tenants in there, you still have a lot of debt. And if one of them leaves or isn't paying the rent, you need to come out of pocket if you don't have proper reserves or if it's not cash flowing properly to, to cover the debt service. So that is one thing that I would say buyer beware. If you are going to do that, make sure you have proper reserves because repairs and maintenance do come up. Mm -hmm. And then did you say you were actually renting them out to students right then and there or was that later down your journey? You know, I thought I wanted to get into real estate and the first kind of, you know, again, someone said, hey, you should look at doing an FHA. It's a great way to get in. You don't have a ton of money. You're pretty young. I didn't have any savings at the time. I had enough to kind of put down the deposit on that. And once I bought one, I kind of got the bug, as a lot of people do. My day job was on a renewable energy trading desk, and I was also a power scheduler. So you're, you know, you're looking at kind of the different demand charts for electricity throughout the Northeast for our client base at Creus, and it's not tangible. And then you know you drive by, you know, the property that you bought and you lived at, and hey, I can redo a kitchen and get a couple hundred bucks more a month, or you know, I, there's pride of ownership. Why is there trash on the side of the building? And it was tangible, and to me, that was the real bug. You can understand it more, and you can actually touch and feel it and create value really quickly. And that was when I got hooked. And then from there, I was like, all right, well, I got one. Can I do more? I just graduated college. We paid a lot for our rent, student housing, and. 
what I did from there was I took actually from Tim Ferriss's book, Brickwork India, you can outsource kind of menial tasks. And I outsourced, I pulled a list of every college in the country and I had them pull their enrollment. And then in the zip code, I pulled from Zillow. I had the team and through Brickwork pull studios, ones, twos, threes, and four bed rent. I blended those together to come up with my rent per bed. And then I came up with a median home price because I knew I couldn't go buy a hundred unit student housing building. I was going to buy two and three families. And I got the highest yield in the countries, you know, across the board. And one of those was in Buffalo, New York. And that was where I ended up buying a portfolio with one of my best friends from college that we still own today. Wow. That sounds awesome. My second, I guess, deep dive into the real estate, you know, world. And I, and I was still kind of holding a, a day job the whole time. This was really my nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really cool to see and hear that, you know, you really got the bug because you could physically feel and understand the product. I had a friend who had something very similar where she was working in tech sales for Oracle and, you know, they sell databases and it's a very valuable and useful product, but to someone on the phone all day trying to sell this piece of technology, she's like, I don't know what a database is, right? Like, what, what is it? Versus going to real estate. It's like, okay, I'm selling this family, a property that appreciates, they can make money and I, she feels good selling this. So now she's obviously doing really well as an agent. I was wondering, now that you're kind of in the weeds of being in student housing, what have you found to be the pros and cons of this particular niche in real estate investing? I guess it might be helpful to kind of fill the circle here. So as I started buying more and more on you know my nights and weekends, I really said, I want to learn how to do this at an institutional level. And I want to work for someone and be a value add to their team that's doing really good projects. And this was when WeWork was coming up and a lot of these companies that were kind of changing the model and you know, that's a different conversation if they did a good or a bad thing. But my opinion from there was, you know, again, I mentioned I have family friends and they own a lot of really, you know, what's called large buildings. And when you talk to them, you say, hey, if you were my age, what would you do? And they admit they couldn't do what they did in today's world because you could find a building from your barber's cousin who got it right when his dad died or something. There wasn't all of these sites. There wasn't podcasts where your average person working at W2 does want a house hack, right? There's more competition. So my theory became you either need to do something different, like whether it be a WeWork, right? Or you need to truly understand how to create value, which in my opinion can only be done through development. Yeah, that's why you see, you know, there's only so many development shops that have been around for years and years and years. You have some guys that do a couple and they don't want to do it anymore. It's too difficult, too stressful, but there's a ton of acquisition shops. And I was always under this theory that development truly creates value. You're taking, you know, essentially an idea, a piece of land, uh, either scraping a building or taking a piece of grass in many cases or a parking lot, and you're at, you're creating true value. So I knew I wanted to go work for, you know, one of the better student housing companies in the country was doing at the institutional level. I had done it on my own, small units, two and three families, single families adjacent to college campuses. And then I came across Aptitude Development, the founder, Jared Hutter, was speaking at a conference and they were doing everything right. They were marketing themselves right. They were at great schools and they were doing really, really creative buildings in terms of the design and the pro- and how they were programming it. And I emailed them and I didn't get an email back. And then I emailed them and I didn't get an email back. And then he was like, we're not hiring, but why don't you send me your resume? And essentially... For every like one email he sent me, I sent him three. I eventually got a meeting and then convinced him to hire me. I mean, two and a half years later, we're on our seventh project as a firm. Uh, they had done two before I got there. And I'm our VP of development and we're having a ball doing it and doing you know really well as a company. It's been exciting to see the trajectory that we're on. And I really think we're just upwards from here. I think the key takeaway there is that if you find someone that's doing something that you want to do, definitely try to add value to them. And be persistent, you know, don't just give up after the first no, because you never know, like, they might have an opening that they might just create just for you because they like your character and they like your hustle. Yeah, 
And you know, that was kind of the difference that I learned day one is what I was doing, buying single families and two families near college campuses is not student housing. You know, we house students, but you know, the things that we do is aptitude development and the really the home we create for these kids and the different offerings we can provide them. And this is kind of all, let's call it purpose-built student housing is incredible. Let's break it down for a second. So when you look at student housing, I think a lot of kids think of like a frat house or a lot of people, let's say, right? It is as sophisticated, if not more than your average multifamily or, you know, Avalon type branded building, right? The difference with student housing is if you're going to go build multifamily, you're primarily building studios, ones and twos. Maybe in certain parts of Manhattan on the Upper East Side, where you know there's a lot of families, you will do some three beds in there, right? For student housing, you have full bed-to-bath parity. And what that means is if you have a four-bedroom, you have a four-bathroom. Let's say it's Zach, Sean, Jason, and Jim, you know, are the four best friends and they all want to live in. After freshman year on campus, they want to go move off campus. We would sign a lease. You lease it by the bed. Typically, the parents guarantee it. And then the four of us would show up in August for whatever college we were going to. We'd show up with suitcases, some linens, and we're home. Utilities are typically included. You have washer and dryer and unit, a full built-out kitchen with stainless steel appliances. You have TVs, internet's included. And then you have the four bedrooms that each have a walk-in closet to the bathroom. So you're literally put in, it comes with a bed, dressers, desk, there's a desk chair. You really show up with your clothes, put your linens on the bed, and you're at college, man. It, it's it's pretty much easy sailing from there. We try to make it as easy as an experience for you know the resident, but from an investor standpoint too, it's a really high rent per foot. You're making really efficient units that actually offer more than you can get in most legacy assets. And most kids, if they're living with friends, couldn't afford that type of experience in a one bedroom in a, in a newer multifamily building. So the value proposition is there too. Yeah, makes sense. What do you think the big difference is between student housing and you know your traditional multifamily housing? It's design and programming, right? So you have, I mean, I don't want to say tired, but in a lot of multifamily buildings, like the amenities are, are either super nice and really high-end condo buildings, or they're pretty tired and basic and they're kind of boomer-esque, right? Like they, they don't add a lot of value. It's like a business center that no one's ever been in. When a student housing building, you might put 500 square feet on every single floor. That is a study room. So a kid during finals week doesn't have to go walk to the library to try to find a table to study for their, you know, their chemistry final. They can walk down the hall in the safety of their own building and have a study room. You know, we have what some people are calling tinkerer rooms, where you'll go and there'll be like a quasi lab space uh, uh, in the amenity space. There is, you know, typically you have gyms, but they're a lot nicer than you've ever been to a gym in a multifamily building. Some are great, but most of them suck. And, you know, we have indoor-outdoor gyms with a garage door that slides up. So when it's a nice day, you take your weights outside and you can do your you know, your app, your fitness class on your phone, or your iPad, you do it outside. And there's and then that's, there's a pool right next to it. So you can say hi to your friend as well. It really is programmed for the modern day student with a focus on health and wellness. And that is all of our buildings across the country have a really high focus on one kid studying. So we have great study centers and then also the gym. Yeah, perfect. So, I mean, I would assume that for student housing, because, you know, you're getting new students every single year that there's a huge turnover and I think for most people who do invest in like long-term assets, they hate turnover because it's, it means there's more turnover costs, et cetera. How do you guys deal with that particular issue? I think that's a good point, turnover costs, right? When you talk to your average, let's call it investor that invests in real estate, or even if you know, they invest mostly in equities or whatever, you know, VC, whatever it may be, 
their memory of college is kids throwing kegs through walls. <laughs> and they're like, what is your turnover cost? The reality is, is, you know, our buildings too have about probably eight to 10 people in staff. You have a full-time general manager. You have a full-time leasing manager. You have multiple leasing assistants. Then you also have community managers, which is just kids that work part-time trying to help lease the building. So there's a sense of accountability in the building at all times. A lot of buildings have security guards. You also have cameras in the hallways, right? So if someone comes home drunk and knocks down every exit sign in the building and punches a hole in the 60-inch outdoor TV that costs $10,000, you know who it is, and they're on the hook. And it really is, you know, it's not a big brother, but it is, hey, this is a really nice building where people are paying for a great place to live and kids can't just come in and destroy that. So we do take accountability on that, and that's also part of the guarantor portion. If a kid, you know... If four guys live in a, in a unit, right, and they trash, one kid trashes the bedroom and then the four of them trash the living room, that kid's responsible on that lease for that specific bedroom, and they all would have to be responsible for the living room. So the turnover and maintenance cost is actually a lot less than you would think because you have there's more of a sense of community and there's accountability because you're not in some old house that's already been beat to crap in that last 60 years. That's one, I think it's a, a misconception about the industry that there's a huge turnover expense. And the other side of that is you do see like around 40 to 50% of renewal rate actually in student housing. In addition to that, it's great because you can get really high rent growth. When you have a new rent roll for a large portion of it every year, you can implement really nice rent growth on a year-by-year basis. Where in multifamily, if you have 95%, 90 whatever it may be, depending on the city you're in, renewal rates, you can't jack the rent 20% in year one if you have a great building, right? You can do that in student housing. We've done it. Right, because they're moving out anyway, so the new tenant is okay paying this higher rent. Yep. Yeah, awesome. Has COVID affected your projects in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, I mean, I think as a whole, COVID's been, it's affected everyone, right? How can it not? It's been a, a huge, I would say, learning lesson. I think, you know, the amount of safety precautions and sanitation and cleaning we've had to put in our buildings are things you don't think about when you're underwriting a deal, you know, two, three years ago. You know, by the time you go put it under contract, you underwrite the deal, you go raise the money, you get a bank to come in, you go spend uh, two years building it, then you occupy it. You don't think about, is there going to be a virus that's going to have us have a, a sanitizing station on every single floor and extra cleaning crews helping you know keep the building safe? But the flip side is there's some great things about COVID for the student housing industry, which I think has been a tailwind. First, you're seeing a lot of these on-campus dormitories de-densify. So where you had the double occupancy units in your freshman dorm or sophomore dorm or some of these schools that want to have a two-year, three-year live-on requirement, and they're stuffing kids into a unit, they've had to de-densify. Where do those kids go? Those kids have gone to us. They've gone to private student housing developers that even if the four of us live together, I have my own private space to my bedroom, and I have enough room with my bedroom, my walk-in closet, and my bathroom, or if I don't want to see you or I don't feel comfortable around you for you know whatever reason at that time, I have my own private space. We're in double occupancy on-unit facility. You don't have that option. Also, a lot of the housing stock on campuses around the country are just old, right? So they don't have the certain, uh, you know, makeup of a new building in terms of how it's cleaned and the, the different ways you can sanitize it or the, fil- the air filters. And there's different things we've done that have, you know, made it a much safer building. And the on-campus stuff is de-densifying, which has been really a tailwind, I think, for the industry as a whole. The other thing that, you know, we kind of have always been known as an asset class, and I don't know if you've heard this, but it's recession resilient. It's always been kind of the claim to fame, right? Recession resilient. If uh, 2008, when the whole you know world came falling down, people that couldn't get jobs went back to college, right? And that's the most real catastrophe that the industry has had to deal with, okay? So this is even worse. You have an infection, 
going around and people can't go in person and congregate. So what happens where your business is people congregating at college campuses and living in your building, right? We have actually had a higher collection rate than multifamily. And the only asset class that's performed better from a collection standpoint is industrial. So we once again have kind of lived up to the mantle of being recession resilient. We've had very high occupancy because kids don't want to live at home. They're going to go do their hybrid classes a couple of days in person, a couple of days online from their apartment, and they still want to live with their friends. You know, I think people forget, you know, you're 19, 20, 21 year old, 22 year old. They don't want to live with mom and dad and mom and dad. They don't want them in the back of their Zoom call when they're trying to close a deal. It just I think people underestimate that. But you know, going back to the recession resilient comment is, you know, everyone was freaking out. This is going to crush the industry. What's going to happen? And it proved its name once again. You had you know, mid to high 90s across the board in collections, which is just astounding considering college campuses in a lot of parts of the country were shut down. So as a whole, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned, but it, it also has once again given us confidence in the industry and, and the growth in the future. Yeah, Zach, you brought up some super good points that I didn't even consider because obviously I'm an outsider. You know, I think, okay, there's a pandemic hitting, people aren't going to school. You know, my cousin, she's here in Davis right now and she's taking classes online this whole time. But then there's two big things, right? One, yeah, she doesn't want to live at home. She wants to live with her boyfriend in an apartment. And then two, she can't live in the dorms because like you said, the dorms were cramming kids. I was in a dorm at UCLA, three kids into one like 200 square foot room, right? And then we all share the bathrooms in the hallways, right? Can't have that happening during COVID. So then where do you go? Okay, you go to apartments or you go to, you know, if you're student housing. And, you know, I've actually seen some new developments down in Los Angeles where they look super nice. So I understand the appeal of having your own bedroom, your own bathroom, and shared common living spaces. So it's all very cool. Yeah, it's a very you know, professional, institutionalized asset class at this point. I think, you know, again, I think if you talk to your average, you know, it's called person over. I mean, even my friends I talked to in their like late 20s, I go, why would I invest in student housing? You know, tell me about it. And again, they think of a frat house. They think of the old multifamily building that had been run down for the last 60 years that happened to be close to campus. It is as institutionalized and professional as you can get in today's world. It's really impressive how far it's come. And let's assume that you're someone who doesn't know what they're doing, right? Maybe they're a developer for multifamily, but they don't understand student housing. What are some of these common pitfalls that people should be watching out for if they're trying to get into student housing? You know, I think from a developer standpoint, if you're trying to make the, the jump from multifamily to student housing, you know, the first thing I would say is maybe JV on your first deal, right? Maybe either partner up with someone that, that really knows the space. I mean, you can go in a market and have, you know, a B location that you might think is an A because it's on the edge of campus. But maybe you haven't spent, you know, 50 hours on the ground and know that none of the kids want to live north of campus, even though it's right outside the gate because it's crime. There's a lot of crime on that side and kids only want to live on the south side of campus. You thought you had this great assemblage or you don't understand how important it is to build a leasing office, right? Multifamily, you know, really starts to lease when buildings open, maybe six months before they open. For student housing, we build a two-scale model unit off-site. So a good example of that is we have a building under construction right now at the University of Arkansas. It will deliver this spring. We built last year, before kids even came back, a two-scale model unit in the you know one of the most trafficked areas of the university in a retail center. So there used to be like some clothing store there that was pretty big. And we actually went in and you have, you know, a desk with a girl and some music and the leasing office. Then you have all the, the community assistants, as I mentioned, who go and help try and get leases. And as a student, you say, I see this building going up. What's it going to look like to me? 
you walk in, there's the 3D goggles to go, and you can actually look around the whole building. And then you open the door, and it's a two-scale model unit, the exact same couch you're going to have in the unit, the same appliances you're going to have in your unit, the same island you're going to have in your unit, the same colored cabinets and wallpaper, and there's a full bedroom. You can see how the bedroom feels too. So it takes a lot of the guesswork away, but if you don't know the industry, you might not know that when you open in August and kids come back, that's when your leases stop. You know, If you're not leased up by that time, you're in trouble. And people that think they're going to lease up in November, December, whatever it may be, it's really tough. And multifamily guys, it's, it's okay because people lease throughout the year. Students know where they're living when they come back to campus. So it's really important how you hit the ground and how you pre-lease a building. And if you don't know that for multifamily, you're going to get hurt in the student housing space. And we see that in a lot of markets we're in. We might have a local multifamily guy who does really well, you know, says, hey, I got a great piece of land in the school. I'll go build student housing. And they just don't know how to operate it properly. That's super cool. So you have an actual leasing office in a super like populated area. Now, did you say you actually build out what the actual thing looks like or is it all through this like virtual 3D experience? Yeah. So you walk in the door to the leasing office and you'll have like a desk where you know, people are filling out leases or applications or learning more about the building. You might have a TV with some renderings going across it. You'll have a virtual reality kind of stand where they can go around the whole building and learn more about what it would look like. And then you know take that off in another part of the leasing office is when you open an actual door and you would enter what would be you know our mock unit or our model unit and it's the exact same unit you'll move into. I mean, you know, maybe not, you know, it's a one bedroom you're gonna move into a four, but the finishes, the feel, the look of it, the furniture, everything within there is ex- programmed exactly how it'll be when you move in. So you're not leaving up any guesswork to the kids of it's not finished, do I wanna move in? My friends live there, what's going on? They can actually see what they're gonna move into and it gets people excited. That makes sense. You know, we have similar issues with people who are trying to buy like their very first condo and they're trying to buy the new development ones, but they walk inside and they see that's not finished. They think, oh, this space is super small. This thing looks really weird. Three months later, the property is completely finished. The price is now higher because it's no longer in phase one. And now they're like, damn, I should have bought this at phase one. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens if you can't lease after August? What do you do in that situation? I mean, there's still leasing in the market, right? You can get leases here and there, but that's why the pre-lease portion is so important and why we put so much of an emphasis on it. If you go in and you open late, it's a problem. You know, maybe you don't open till October because of delays with construction. You know, a lot of these guys, you know, you got to put the kids in a hotel for 30 days and you pay for the hotel and then they move into the building in, in October. But as a whole, if you miss that deadline, you're in trouble. You can try and lease, but that's why it's so important to that and why we emphasize pre-leasing and we've done very well with it to date. Mm-hmm. And then do you guys lease it like one lease for four people or each person has their own lease? Excuse me. So one of the big things is you lease per bed. So in multifamily, you know, it's a 200 unit building, right? With student housing, you might have a 200 unit building, but you're really looking at it as a 500 or 600 bed building and you lease it by the bed. Okay. You know, there's, challenges that come with that, but it also is kind of great. Again, I think, as I mentioned earlier, student housing, you know, not all the time, but in a lot of cases is the highest price per foot you could get for that piece of land in almost every college market in the country. Um, And that is because of the efficiency of the units uh, and the rent per foot that you get by having, you know, a four bed, four bath in your typical student housing unit. So, you know, that is one of the big things there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Higher rent growth versus just renting out the whole unit for like 900 bucks per month. When it comes to financing these properties, I'm sure it's a lot more challenging than it would be for multifamily because you don't have that quote unquote stable rent numbers, like you were saying, where 
you have 95% occupancy on average or like with like low turnover. So how does financing differ from multifamily in this case? I don't want to say the wrong thing, right? Because maybe you misunderstood it. So you do have a higher turnover than multifamily, but the turnover isn't really an issue. Like you're getting there, right? If you have a, a great building in a great location, you know, we try to build adjacent to the university. In a lot of our buildings, you walk out the front step, you're on campus or you're across from the entrance to campus. It's going to be full. And banks know that. There isn't an issue with financing student housing. You have higher occupancy on average than, you know, if you're in a good location, I would say then your average multifamily guy, right? Because multifamily, I can go build a half mile down the road. And if it's the exact same building, or maybe it's a little bit nicer or newer, I'm probably going to steal some of that capture market from the multifamily guy down the street. You know, I think people who are in their car don't care if they're an extra, you know, 30 seconds from their place of work. For kids, if they're walking to campus, the location is so much more important, right? And, you know, as a whole, the industry does very, very well in terms of occupancy. I mean, I would say out of all of our properties, you know, we have almost all of them are in the 96 to 99% occupancy rate. And this is during COVID. And the industry as a whole sees that, right? And then you do have your assets that are further away from campus, but they're kind of its, its own sub-market where they have, might have lower rents or older vintages before it became more institutionalized. But the turnover isn't really a concern. And the occupancy, if it's built right, and if it's priced right, and if it's located right, it should never be an issue. And banks are not afraid of student housing. You know, we deal with some of the largest banks in the country. And if you look at some of the, you know, you talk, talk about volume from these large Wall Street banks, it's massive. There's companies who do over a billion dollars a year, every year in student housing development. And that is just, you know, there's maybe four or five of them who do that. So financing isn't an issue. And again, I think it's institutionalized. I think people kind of misconceive it as like the ugly stepbrother to maybe some of the sexier stuff like condos or, or multifamily. And obviously industrial is really, really attractive right now. But student housing is really as gold as it gets. That's awesome. So I know that some of my friends are trying to do like the uh, quote unquote, like house hacking model where they are renting out by the bed, similar to student housing where they're renting out by the bed, but they're doing it on Airbnb or, you know, through like some kind of short term rental. And then of course, banks do not like that. They're like, no, this is not traditional. You, we want to see one lease per unit per property. So I assumed that it would be the same thing for student housing, but I guess that's not the case here. It's a fair point, right? Because if you compare it to Airbnb, it kind of might seem that way, right? Well, when Sean comes in and he signs a lease, right? And he's going to sign it for the, you know, let's call it February of 2021. He's signing with our building for fall of 21 through spring of 22 right? It's a 12 month lease for Sean. So you have a stable rent roll and then it's guaranteed by the parent. Or if you, you know, if your parent can't do it, you're going to have to have, find a guarantor of some sort, right? Or if you can't find a guarantor, there's certain apps out there or maybe put three months worth of rent deposit down. Regardless, it's a very safe lease. Whereas an Airbnb, to your point, there isn't a stable rent roll. It is hard to finance. With student housing though, you have an extremely sticky rent roll, more so than multifamily. Because if you can't collect from the kid, you couldn't collect from the parent. And if you say, hey, you know, it's going to go to a debt collector, it's going to be a ding on your credit, don't pay the rent. Right. Makes sense. So let's talk about aptitude a little bit. What is the timeline for one of your development projects? And how do you guys even target different locations? It's a good question. So I guess a good comparison is multifamily, right? When you go to a multifamily, let's say Sean and Zach start a multifamily company, right? And we want to go do multifamily class A type developments. We want to go to these economic hubs with 
you know, high wage growth and a really high population growth, right? Those might be some of the main two drivers that you and I focus on. In the student housing industry, you're focusing on the college. You dig into all the metrics of the state and, you know, the region and, and all the, the other things you look at for multifamily too, but your main drivers are the school. So what do you look at? You look at rent growth, right? You look at enrollment growth. If a school, you know, in the last five years has grown 30% and they're adding 500, you know, let's call it a thousand kids a year. Oh my God, that's a, you know, you could have a ton of new supply come in and it'll fill up every year just from absorption, right? So you look at enrollment growth, rent growth, occupancy rates are really important. You look at the rent per bed in the market. You know, some of these markets are incredible from, you know, a place to go watch a good, you know, football game and a nice SEC football game on a Saturday and tailgate, but the rents are 400 bucks a bed and they can't support new construction. And at Aptitude, we focus really on new construction because we think we can create value through development. So, you know, you pick your market, you know, there's different macros you look at. And then when you pick your market, you got to pick your location. And, you know, it's hard to find the needle in a haystack, right? But it also gives you an exciting opportunity to be creative. And that could be through, you know, maybe you go buy 10 single family homes that all the, you know, all the kids have been partying in for the last 20 years. And, you know, Grandma Jane wants to get out and she's owned it since she went there with her husband. You can go buy all 10 at a, at a pretty high basis, maybe comparatively to someone that could just buy it as a single family home. And you go build 20 stories up with ground floor retail and a rooftop pool. And it's adjacent to campus, right? So you pick your market, you pick your location, you know, and then you start to go through the approval process with the city. So if you need to get rezoned, get rezoned, you get your building permits and approvals, and then you go build the thing. Typical construction is about 18 months. And then by the time you deliver, you try to deliver like spring, maybe early summer. So like April, May, June, kids move in in August, and then you're kind of watching the races. Depending on, you know, the hold period, it could be a three-year hold, a five-year hold, a seven-year hold. A 10-year hold, we've done three opportunity zone projects to date. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that program, but there's a lot of benefits of it. Um, and one of the caveats with that is to get the biggest tax benefit is to hold onto the property for 10 years. So we have a few projects that are 10-year holds. But yeah, I mean, typical from, let's call it inception. There's some deals that we put under contract in you know two weeks. There's some deals we put under contract that I'm still hunting in markets two years later and I can't find a deal. But they're great markets, so you keep trying. And when you're looking for markets, are you just kind of shotgunning blasting uh, brokers in those areas saying, hey, I'm looking for this type of asset near this area? You know, it depends. I think everyone has their own little secret sauce, right? I think that brokers still have an integral part in finding deals. I know that people are doing iBuying now and that's become kind of a hot thing to do. And there's different methods to do that. But I also think it's naive that if Sean and I have never been to Bozeman, Montana, but we want to go build at the University of Montana adjacent to the school, there's probably a guy that knows who's kind of on his way out and doesn't want to hold anything anymore, or whose father and, and mother just died and they just inherited, you know, 20 acres of farmland next to the school that they want to go build a high rise in and you can JV with them, right? There's great opportunity that, you know, being local, I think still provides. And we try and leverage a lot of our national brokerage relationships. You know, some people use LoopNet, some people use certain technologies that scan GIS systems that can figure out, you know, who owns the largest parcel next to schools. There's a hundred different ways to do it, but, you know, I think there's still a lot of value in using brokers. And I think a lot of that comes down to knowing the market too and doing due diligence on the front end. Awesome. And I know we talked about financing a little bit earlier, but how does financing work for new development and construction? You know, we typically will go get a construction loan. It'll be anywhere from a three to four year construction loan. So, you know, that'll take us through the construction process. And then once we open the building and we have a rent roll and true numbers to show, so let's say a building, for example, that we're building in Arkansas is opening in the fall of 21. In the spring of 22, we'll start to talk to banks and over that kind of spring, summer, fall, we'll ideally refinance it. 
we'll try to give ourselves some you know leeway, maybe get some terms on the front end for maybe it's a four-year loan. So if we don't, you know, I love how the market performed in that year, or we think it's softening, or if it's really strong, whatever it may be, you know, maybe you have an extra year to refinance it or, or build some extensions in there. But the typical path would be, you know, to build it and then refinance either during or after your first year of operations. Yeah. So you can show the banks that you're running well, and then you have some seizing in the property. Exactly. And I think that's where we create, you know, a lot of value. What we've seen to date is, you know, you build it for X and it's worth, you know, X and a half or X times two or whatever it may be. You know, in our Syracuse project, the Marshall Syracuse, we actually refinanced 105% of our equity out of the deal. So our investors had no risk in there after 18 months, you know, in our typical deals. And, and that's one of the good things about development is you're de-risking the deal rather quickly. You know, you might get 25 to 75%, and, and obviously Syracuse is a unique example, or 100% of your money out in the first, you know, year of operations. And, you know, that is great to de-risk your deal and take some money off the table, but that can truly be created only through development. Now, there's value-add plays, you can do that, but it's tough to make those numbers work and pull that much money out that quickly. So is your construction loan the same as your purchase loan? No, so we'll typically buy land in cash, and then we'll either you know, we'll, then we'll go finance the construction portion of it. I mean, you know, sometimes you can do a loan on, on the land if you want, but you know, right now in Birmingham, we're building you know a rather large building. I think the land price was maybe two percent of our total project cost. It's pretty minimal on a lot of these. Oh wow! So was this like a small house on a large lot or something like that? Were you able to purchase? A 1.28 acre, you know, site, and you had an old auto body shop on half and a parking lot on the other. And it is down the street from the business school at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Okay. I was in Birmingham about two or three years ago. So I've actually been through that area. So it's actually pretty nice. Oh, cool. What were you doing? You know, actually, personally, I was trying to buy some multifamily properties for my own portfolio. But I had some issues getting financing because they're like, oh, you're from California. We can't give you this loan. And you know, at the time, I wasn't super well networked. I didn't know too many brokers who could do a commercial loan for me. And then I was like, all right, whatever. I, and I gave up on that idea. It's a great city. Yeah, it is. I had some chicken there. It was really good. <laughs> it's hot chicken. All right. But that's wonderful. So as a company, I know you guys do take investors as well. Where do they come in in this entire scheme? So we typically are seeing, you know, anywhere from 65 to 75%, you know, LTC. And we have raised... Every deal to date through what's called, you know, friends and family, high net worth individuals. You know, we've looked at going institutional and it's definitely still on the table. But for now, we've been able to raise our deals this way. And I think it's a great opportunity for a lot of people that want to get into real estate. You know, I have probably half a dozen friends that have invested in our deals. And, you know, a lot of them say, hey, I want to go buy a single family. I want to house hack. I want to get involved in real estate. And I said, okay, well, do you have a, a manager where you want to buy? Do you know what you want to buy? Do you know the asset class you want to buy? Do you want a third party manage? Do you want to get a call at 2 a.m. when the toilet overflows? Do you really know if you're ready to do that? And I think, again, it just should become somewhat more commercialized, whether it be through million dollar listing or you know, the house flipper shows or, you know, even, you know, the Grand Cardones of the world, which have been great PR for the industry, right? But, you know, a lot of people say, I want to go do that. And that's great. You should, right? I did it myself and it's been phenomenal for me. But I also think there's merit and a lot of value in maybe being the limited partner on your first deal, right? Go you know, write a check and be involved in real estate. Understand kind of why this deal makes sense, why it doesn't, what the rents are, how are they justifying that? What is the refinance cap rate and how are they coming at the value that they can pull the money out at? What is depreciation? You know, we do something called accelerated depreciation through a cost segregation analysis. You know, some people would never think to do that. And, and there's certain sophistication and things you can learn through an LP 
or being an LP and it's truly passive. And that's not a bad way to dip your toe in the water. But, you know, we have LPs from all across the country. You know, some of them are literally my fraternity brothers from college, you know, and some of them play in the NFL. You know, it kind of, it goes all the way the whole gamut. And that's how we've, you know, capitalized all of our deals to date. I think that would be the game plan for at least the next few years here. But, you know, we kind of look at it as all money's green, right? Like my fraternity brothers, when, you know, they were starting in their first couple of jobs and, you know, they were able to invest in our deals, you know, their checks weren't huge, but, you know, as we get bigger and we grow, you know, they're going to grow in their careers and they can, you know, continue to build in this story with us. And you have, you know, other guys that are hedge fund managers and invest in our deals. And, you know, it's part of their allocation of capital on a year to year basis in their investment portfolio. So, you know, we don't look at any kind of investors being too small or too big. We're just happy to do what we do and create value for everyone. Awesome. Um, what is the process of investing in a deal of yours? And when are they actually going in, in terms of like the pipeline of your deal? Yeah, sure. If you want to invest in your deal, text or call me. Uh, my number is 781-789-4354. I'm always available. You can literally text or call me if you have questions about real estate, student housing, or if you want to invest in one of our projects, we're, we're happy to have you. But I would say the process with that is we take on all the entitlement risk, right? So we will go find the land, put it under contract, pay for the drawings from the architect and the civils and go to the city and get a rezone and take the true entitlement risk, right? And once we get site plan approval, we will go raise the money from our investors. Typically, it's anywhere from 30 to 90 days on total when we raise capital. We have a really strong base of LPs that have always come through for us. And that seems to be the trend. We're in the middle of a capital raise right now. We launched about two and a half weeks ago now, and we're almost 80% you know, committed at this point, which is really exciting. But yeah, they come in, you know, kind of after the entitlement process, and then they'll be in the deal in, until we sell it. And you know, our typical returns are high teens, low twenty IRRs, and anywhere from a you know two to three and a half equity multiple, depending on you know, the location and the project. And are those funds used for like the down payment portion of the construction loan? For example, if you're getting like yeah, so they're the equity for the project. So if that bank is seventy percent of the deal. Uh, the LP would be, or you know, really the the equity is thirty percent of the deal. And one thing that we do, which you know, I love and, and I'm really proud of it. As a company, we typically put up a quarter to a third of all of the equity in a deal. You know, a lot of times you see 90, 10, and we do typically a quarter to, to a third, if not more. So we have more skin in the game than anyone else. And I think that is, you know, some people got have got burned investing in other people's deal because they'll go take their fee, they'll go develop it. Maybe they'll flip it. They don't really care if it performs or not. But when you're the, the largest investor in your own deal, you truly give a shit if the deal performs over a 10-year period. You're watching it every day. The, the the amount of level of detail and things that we care about in the office, I've never even heard of it anywhere else. We genuinely care, you know, and these are our largest investments. They're our babies and we make sure they perform. So yeah, I think there's a real pride of ownership in what we provide to our investors and what kind of value we create for our residents too. Cool. And are there any minimum investments to invest with you guys? And do the investors have to be qualified in some way? Like do they have to be an accredited investor or something like that? Yeah. So you do have to be accredited. Minimum, I would say, is typically project by project. And that's changed over time and the size of the capital stack. But, you know, again, I think if you have questions on if you can get involved or qualify or if the minimum makes sense for you, you can call me and or you can call Sean and Sean can call me or whatever it may be. And, and we can talk about it and see if there's a way to make it work. Awesome. Well, Zach, is there anything else that you think we should know about aptitude development before we finish our show today? No, I mean, I, you know, I think as a whole, my journey has been you know, pretty excited to date. I'm happy where I was able to you know, find a home at, at Aptitude and kind of how I got my start. It was really great learning the business. And you know, we're only doing great things from here. And if you're interested in real estate and you're thinking about it and you're just listening right now, 
you should definitely take the dive into the deep end. I think most people don't regret it ever, even if it's a learning experience. Once you catch the bug, it's a pretty good one. And then, you know, there's a quote I love, and I don't know, I, I just think it's great. It's from Lord Alan Sugar. He's from England. He has a, a quote, you make money from real estate, everything else is for fun. And I just think that's a great one. It's a great business to be in. If you have an interest, dive into the deep end. If you have an interest in getting involved with Aptitude on the LP side or, or a JV of some sort, you know, reach out and, you know, happy to be a resource in any way I can. Awesome. And Zach, do you want to give your contact information one more time? Sure. Yep. So Zach Feldman, and the best way to reach me is my cell phone. It's 781-789-4354. Or you can check us out on our website, which is, Z at, or, uh, is aptitude.re.com, A-P-T-I-T-U-D-E-R-E.com. Or you can reach me at my email, which is zf at aptitude.re.com. Perfect. Well, Zach, thank you again so much for coming on the show today. I thought this was an amazing conversation about student housing. Thank you guys so much and hope to see you again sometime soon. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.